Luke 23. Then the whole company of them arose and brought before him Pilate, or brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar, and saying that he himself is Christ a king. And Pilate asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, You have said so. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee, even to this place. When Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. And when he learned that they belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him, because he had heard about him, and he was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod, with his soldiers, treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this day they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, behold, I did not find any guilt of this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. But they all cried out together, Away with this man, and release to us Barabbas. A man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city for a murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, Crucify him! Crucify him! A third time, he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified. And their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked. But he delivered Jesus over to their will. And as they led him away, they seized one, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren, and the wombs that never born, and the, rest, and the breasts that never nursed. And they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. For if they do these things, when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Two others, who were criminals, were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And they cast lots to divide his garments. And the people stood by watching. But the ruler scoffed at him, saying, He saved others, let him save himself. 
if he is the Christ of God, his chosen one. The soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him the sour wine and saying, if you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. It was now about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And having this, he breathed his last. Now, when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, Certainly this man was innocent. And all the crowds had assembled for this spectacle. When they saw what had taken place, they returned home, beating their breasts. And all his acquaintances and the women who followed him from Galilee stood at a distance, watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man, who had not consented to their decision and action. And he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in stone where no one had ever been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We've come to the climax of Luke's gospel. We see Jesus on his way to the cross, dying in our place. Would you bow with me? Let's pray and ask God to use his word to minister to our hearts, open our eyes to the truths that are in it. Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand it. Help us to take it in. What it meant for Jesus, the Holy One, to bear away our sin. Help us to understand it, O oh Lord. Help us to take it in today. Wherever we're at, Whatever journey we're on in your world, help us to take it in today. What it meant for Jesus, the Holy One, to bear away our sin. Open our eyes, O oh God. Help us to see afresh Jesus for who he really is in his humility and majesty, the suffering Savior, who dies in the place of sinners. Oh, how we need him, Lord.
It's in his name I pray. Amen. This last March, I had the privilege of visiting the land of Israel. I was in uh, the places that we just read about in this text. And for 10 days, a group of about 25 of us, most of them from here at Gospel Grace, we would uh, pile in and out of our tour bus, driving from one historic site to another. This is uh, the Valley of Engedi, where Saul was chasing David. Uh, we, we climbed to the top of Mount Carmel, stood in the place where Elijah and the prophets of Baal had that famous showdown. We found a brook in the valley of Elah, where David fought Goliath. We even saw the ruins of a gate that Abraham probably walked through thousands of years ago. Went to the Sea of Galilee and, uh, and got into a boat and went out on the sea. And no storms cropped up while we were there, by the way. Um, Basically, we tried to cram as much of about 4,100 years of history and 66 books of the Bible into 10 days. And it was absolutely amazing, like just incredible, life-changing, really. And I will never forget being in Jerusalem, being in the places that we just read about in this text. You know what I, I remember most about all of it? As we stood in the place where the crowd yelled, crucify him, Pilate's court. As we walked around the twisting and winding streets of the old city of Jerusalem where Jesus would have been led with the cross, I was struck with this thought. How real it all is. Like real places, real geography, real streets, real people. Yes, it had all taken place hundreds of years before, but it is all very, very real. Can I share something with you? I struggled remembering that this week. I discovered something about myself, and that's this, that though Jesus is very much a real person, It can be very easy to see him more as an idea to study and talk about than as someone to love and admire. Though the cross was a very real historic event, it can be very tempting and I can far too often be tempted to approach it more as a set of concepts to understand than it is a very real depiction of Jesus and who he is and what he's like and what he did for us. And I wonder, I wonder if you've ever felt the same way. Relating more to ideas and concepts about Jesus than you do to the genuine person of Jesus. Notice it's right there that God wants to meet us in his word today. Because as we look at our text before us, we see the cross and we see Jesus and we see many all around him, sadly, who have their own concepts and ideas about Jesus and they're so focused on them, they can't see what's right in front of them. 
but the cross cuts through all of it. Because the cross shows us who Jesus really is. That's the big idea that I think draws out of this text that's before us today. The cross shows us who Jesus really is. I mean, all through Luke's gospel, Jesus has been proclaiming who he is, what he came to the earth to do. He is the king of the Jews, the Messiah. And as we reach the climax of his journey to Jerusalem, we're going to find out what that really means. And I think we see it in three different ways. We're going to work through them one by one. So let's do that together. What is the first thing that the cross shows us about Jesus? The cross shows us that Jesus is in control. Complete control. Now, it doesn't look like that, does it? I mean, verse 1, Jesus is in the custody of a group of chief priests and scribes, right? I mean, they've put on a mock trial, and they have decided amongst themselves that he should die. But they can't put him to death themselves because they're under Roman rule. And so, verse 1 says that they bring Jesus before Pilate in hopes that they can convince him that Jesus has done some crime that Pilate will sentence him to die for. But even then, even as Jesus is in the custody of other people being led around, he is still very much in control of everything. And I think we see that when we look closely at what Jesus does and doesn't do in this story, okay? So Pilate, he's got a first question for Jesus. He says to Jesus, are you the king of the Jews? Verse three. Now, our English translations, they don't, they don't include the sarcasm that was probably in Pilate's voice here. But I mean, imagine the scene, right? I mean, the man standing before him has just been beaten by the Jews. He's been up all night in prayer and then on trial, right? He is physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually exhausted. You? You are the king of the Jews. Really? You don't look like a king. And how does Jesus reply? I mean, did, does he like claim ultimate authority for himself? Does he put Pilate in his place? No. He gives a non-answer, doesn't he? Like verse three, you have said so. And it, this is absolutely brilliant, by the way, okay? Like Jesus has, has just taken a sarcastic question from Pilate and he's turned it into a confession of his messianic status, Right? I mean, Jesus has both been completely innocent in this moment and also very clear about who he really is at the same time. What is Jesus doing here? Exactly what needs to be done to bring the cross just a little bit closer. That's what he's doing. I mean, as I read this text, I mean, it is so interesting to study who the primary characters are and the primary speakers are. Like I did this, I, I charted out on columns all of the characters on one side, everything that they did and said, and then Jesus. Jesus isn't the primary agent in this story, but he is most definitely in control in the middle of it. 
I think we see that as we examine how he moves through the story. So Pilate hears the chief priests and scribes say that Jesus was doing all of the things that they're accusing him of in, what is it? Galilee. Oh, suddenly Pilate has an opportunity to like pass the buck, okay? He doesn't know what to do with Jesus, but he hears the word Galilee, and so he thinks, oh, you know what? That's not my jurisdiction, and so he sends Jesus to that jurisdiction to see a man by the name of Herod, right? Herod Antipas. Now, Herod was the son of Herod the Great. If you look down at your Bibles, verse 7 tells us that he was very glad to see Jesus. Verse 8, he had long desired to see him. But make no mistake, his, his main goal isn't worship here, is it? His main goal is simply to see Jesus do a miracle. That's what he wants to see. So he starts questioning Jesus about it. And you know, as I I watch this unfold, I I can't help but think of like Herod asking Jesus to do a miracle that it looks a whole lot like a little boy who'd just seen a magic trick, okay? And I, I just imagine like a little boy and his uncle His uncle's got a coin and he kind of does a little sleight of hand, makes it disappear, and then he reaches behind the boy's ear and pulls it out, right? Have you ever seen that trick before? Okay. How many of you had a cool uncle like that? Everybody needs a cool uncle, always doing magic tricks like that, yeah? Yeah. And the little boy, like, eyes are big, like, do it again, right? Do it again, do it again. And then the uncle becomes the magic trick uncle, right? But you know, as I see Herod in this text, the ruler over the entire region of Galilee, like over the entire area where Jesus has been teaching and ministering and healing and doing miracles, he's like begging in this moment, isn't he? Like, how did you do that, Jesus, really? I mean, can you do it again right now? Like, is it something you could just do? Like, when when those people ate that food, the bread and the fish, like, did you, was it really 5,000 of them? Question after question after question, and what does Jesus do? Nothing. Nothing. Verse 9, he gave him no answer. No answer, no miracle, magic trick moments, nothing. I'll think about that for just a second. What could have happened if Jesus had performed a miracle that day? Like, what could have changed about where he was in that moment? What, what could have changed about what awaited him, about the cup that he had just spent the last few hours praying that would pass from him? What would change in that moment? Everything would change, wouldn't it? Like, suddenly an off-ramp on the way to the cross would have appeared. Suddenly a detour around pain and suffering would have opened up and Jesus could have, he could have changed it all with one word or one act. But he didn't. Jesus says nothing and does nothing and is still in complete control. I mean, just contrast Jesus to every other person who's opposing him in this text. 
Like, what are they like and what is Jesus like? Just think about it for a second. Like, Pilate, the governor, you picture him, like, wringing his hands, not sure what to do. Herod, the ruler of Galilee, is begging Jesus to explain things and do something for him. Religious leaders are united in lies. They're vengeful and they're angry. Like, I could just see, like, veins popping out of their necks. Their voices are hoarse from yelling at Jesus all night and in front of Pilate and Herod. They are so enraged when they talk that spit is just flying out of their mouth. Just absolute chaos when I think of them. And then there's Jesus. The perfect portrait of quiet composure and control. He is completely unflappable, perfectly resolute at what he's doing and where he's headed, and gloriously, beautifully sovereign over it all. And as we read the verses of this chapter, Jesus is, is led from place to place to place on his way to be hung on a cross. When you look at this chapter, Luke, Luke spends more narrative and dialogue on those around Jesus than he does on Jesus himself. Like ultimately, Pilate decides Jesus' fate. The end of verse number 25, and he delivers Jesus over to their will. He's led through the city till verse 33. And we find what is the climax of a significant thread in Luke's gospel, and that is this. Simple words, so significant. When they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him. Yes, Jesus was led from place to place. He was delivered over to the will of the religious leaders. He was finally thrown to the ground and nailed to a cross. But this is no accident. Jesus is in the exact spot that he's been aiming for for the last years of his life, right? I mean, you see in Luke chapter 9, Luke even draws this out. I mean, this is 14 chapters prior to where we're at. Luke records these incredible words. He says this, When the days drew near for Jesus to be taken up, he set his face towards Jerusalem. In all of this, Jesus is no hapless victim, my friends. This right here is the very moment that he set his face towards Jerusalem to be a part of. Everyone and everything in this scene is just getting him there. That's what's going on. This is who Jesus really is at the cross, in complete control over everything. You know, I came across a prayer that the early church prayed uh, Luke actually records it. So Luke wrote this book, and he also wrote the book of Acts. And as Jesus' followers were facing their own moments of difficulty and suffering, they prayed these lines. And I love how Luke draws out this point again in the book of Acts. This is Acts chapter 4. Why don't you flip over there in your Bible? You can hold your finger in Luke 23. Don't worry, we'll be back there. Luke chapter 4. 
Listen to this prayer that the early church prayed. Verse 24, when they heard about what was about to happen, they lifted their voice together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made heaven and earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, and then they quote Psalm 2. This is their prayer. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and his anointed. And then look at this. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Wow. What were Pilate and Herod and the religious leaders and every soldier and every person in those crowds doing that day? Exactly what the God of the universe intended them to do. That's what. Because with every word that Jesus does and doesn't say, and everything that Jesus does and doesn't do, even the things that he just allows to happen, Jesus was accomplishing God's promised plan. A plan where he would die an innocent death at the hands of sinners. I mean, that plan is all throughout this text, if you look close enough. It shows up in a line that gets repeated over and over again by people who are actually mocking Jesus. You know what the line is? He saved others, let him save himself. Place those words next to the incredible sovereignty of Jesus, my friends. Because it is precisely in not saving himself that Jesus will offer salvation to any who come to him in faith. It is in death that he's able to offer life to any who will trust in him. It is in his suffering and his agony on the cross that he would fulfill the only plan of salvation for sinners in desperate need. You see, as Jesus is led along, he's delivered over, and he's taken to the place of the skull and hung on a cross to die, what is he doing? He is fulfilling promise after promise after promise about the saving plan of God. Like prophecies written hundreds of years before are just being fulfilled as Jesus suffers one after another. I mean, when Jesus gave Herod no answer, he was showing himself to be the Isaiah 53 sacrifice that is led to the slaughter. And like sheep that before its shears is silent, he opens not his mouth. When Pilate declared that he had found nothing in Jesus deserving of death, but then sentences him to die like a criminal anyway. He was showing that Jesus is the sacrifice for sin whose grave was made with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. When Jesus was crucified between two other criminals, he is seen to be the sacrifice who was numbered with the transgressors, Isaiah 53, 12. When the people stood and they watched Jesus on the cross, some weeping, some mocking, they were doing exactly what Zechariah 12 said they would do. They will look on me on whom they have pierced. They shall mourn for him. 
When Jesus was mocked and scoffed at, the people were simply fulfilling Psalm 22. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads at me. When the soldiers divided Jesus' garments among themselves, they did exactly what Psalm 22 said they would do. They divide my garments among them, and my clothing they cast lots. When the soldiers offered Jesus sour wine, what is that in this story? It's Jesus fulfilling the prophecy from Isaiah, from Psalm 69. For my thirst they gave me sour wine to drink. Oh, my friends, do you see it? What is happening to Jesus in Luke 23? Many horrible things. Chaotic things, disgusting things but everything is under his perfect control. Through all of it, Jesus is perfectly submitted to his father's plan to provide a sacrifice for sinners. And he's in complete control. All the way to the end. And another interesting thing to do is to, to notice how Luke includes things that the other gospel writers don't. Luke includes a phrase right before Jesus dies that the other gospel writers don't. It's in verse 46. Look at it with me. As Jesus hangs on the cross, he lifts up his voice and says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And in the end, no one took Jesus' life from him. When his work was done, he simply committed his soul to his father and breathed his last. No one takes my life from me, Jesus said in John chapter 10. I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. And in Luke 23, that's exactly what Jesus is doing. He's laying down his life as the promised sacrifice for sins. Even with his mouth shut, even as he does nothing, he is in complete control. That's who Jesus really is. And the cross shows it. But then there's something else that Jesus wants us to see. And that's found in Pilate's words. Pilate is the primary one who drives this part of Jesus' revelation forward. But it's seen all throughout the text. And it's found when Pilate says these words. I find no guilt in him. So how does the cross show us who Jesus really is? The cross shows us that Jesus is in control, but it also shows us that he is innocent. Completely innocent. Like in, in a lot of ways, Luke's account of Jesus' life, it's, it's been repeating a, a refrain. It's been repeating the refrain, Jesus came to die. And as the story unfolds, scene by scene, it's like there's an echo in the background, to die, to die, to die. But now as Luke 23 shows us who Jesus really is, we find that that death is undeserved, undeserved, undeserved. Because in his death, Jesus is completely innocent. Like, though the religious leaders have tried their best to come up with charges that will stick to Jesus, 
Both Pilate and Herod decisively find him not guilty, right? I mean, Luke brings that right to the forefront. Though the crowds are screaming what would sound like a guilty verdict, right? Crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate is able to hush them for just a little while in verse 22, and we read this. A third time he said to them, Why? What evil has he done? I have found in him no guilt deserving of death. I will therefore punish him and release him, which which probably meant that Pilate was trying to appease the crowd by giving Jesus just a light beating, like a warning, and then maybe he could still stay just by not putting an innocent man to death. But read on, verse 23. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. No new evidence has been brought forward, right? No new crimes have been sentenced. No new witnesses have come forward. It's just a loud mob. And more than any of the other gospel writers, Luke wants us to see that Jesus is innocent in the middle of all of it. Pilate, he declares it three times. A Roman centurion, as he looks up at the lifeless body of Jesus on the tree, he declares, certainly this man was innocent. And the criminal on the cross next to Jesus even declares it. Look at verse 41. This man has done nothing wrong. Nothing wrong. I mean, actually, those two words right there are particularly insightful One commentator, he actually interprets them this way. He says, this man has done nothing unbecoming. I mean, Jesus isn't just a step above a criminal. He's a step above everyone. Everything he has done has been beautiful and perfect and good. I mean, just watch him as he moves through these scenes. Even in his most difficult hour of suffering and pain, his words to others display complete, beautiful perfection. Like as as he's being led through the streets of Jerusalem to the place of his crucifixion, there's a group of people who are following him and mourning for him. Luke even draws out that many of them were women. And Jesus stops, turns to them, And verse 28 says these words, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves for what is coming. Jesus is more concerned about what will happen to these followers than what will happen to him. And he wants them to be prepared for the things that he's already prophesied. I mean, not only that, Jesus is is on the hill of Calvary. And after the nails have been driven through his hands and his feet, after the soldiers have lifted the cross up and they've dropped it into the hole where it would fall and Jesus fell onto the nails, the first words out of his mouth, Father, forgive them for they do not know what they're doing. 
Now, Jesus isn't declaring forgiveness for these people like he does in other instances in the gospel. Instead of what he's doing here is he's unveiling his heart to us. A heart that is so brimming with forgiveness and mercy, even for those that he's putting to death, that there's no room for anything else. So yes, nails may have pierced his hands and his feet, but not a shred of the hatred or vengefulness or bitterness of those around him have penetrated his heart. And Jesus' innocence just shines. We're meant to see Jesus' innocence in contrast to everyone else in this story, by the way. There's only one innocent person in this story. And it's not Pilate or Herod or the religious leaders or the crowd, is it? I mean, Pilate, he he declared innocence, but he sentences death. Herod's looking for a miracle, but he shirks his own responsibilities. A mob of religious leaders, they're clinging to their law while abandoning justice itself. The crowds are crying for freedom, but ultimately they choose murder and a murderer. Criminals who've been justly sentenced are hanging right next to Jesus in his beautiful perfection. I mean, even the centurion, even the centurion who declares Jesus innocent has just overseen his very death. There is none righteous No, not one. And as Luke shows us Jesus in this text, he means for us to compare ourselves to him as well. How how do we stand next to the perfect one? How often have we been just as caught up in people-pleasing as Pilate was? How often has our main intent with God been that he would do something for us, just like Herod in wanting to see a miracle? How often has our own pursuit of righteousness and goodness and religion been so much about ourselves that Jesus himself actually gets in the way of it? And it's more about us than it is about him, just like the religious leaders. And how often have we, instead of loving our enemies and doing good to them, instead hated them and sought their hurt? Every single person in this story and every one of us is entirely sinful. Do you see it today as you see Jesus for who he really is? Only Jesus is innocent. That's what the cross shows us. So then, if, if Jesus is innocent... And everyone in this story, including us, is guilty. Then why did Jesus die and not someone else? Right? Well, that's the last thing that I think the cross shows us. 
The cross is showing us who Jesus really is. Jesus is in control. He's innocent. But then there's something else that the text shows us. And we, we see it as we examine two very interesting characters in this account. Okay? One of them is named Barabbas. And the other is a criminal hanging next to Jesus. And as we look at both of them, we see that Jesus is the substitute for sinners. Why did Jesus die? Look, makes it very clear. It wasn't a cosmic accident, right? Jesus was very much in control. Jesus is not dying for any guilt of his own, right? Jesus, completely innocent. Why does Jesus die? He dies in the place of sinners. That's why he dies. The cross shows us that Jesus is a substitute for sinners. And we see that, first of all, when we we look at the character Barabbas. And we're first introduced to him in Luke's gospel on the voices of a crowd in verse 18. Pilate has just declared Jesus innocent He's just said that he intends to release Jesus, but the crowd will have none of it. And they demand that someone else, anyone else, be released instead of Jesus. Give us Barabbas. That's what we want. Now, who is Barabbas? Really, the only thing that we know about him from historical record is that he was a really bad guy. Okay? Okay? Barabbas was a known terrorist, a leader of an insurrection, a murderer. That's what the text tells us. And that's really all we know about Barabbas up to this point. Really, really bad guy. Completely deserving to be in prison. And as the scene unfolds, I mean, just imagine it with me. He's sitting in his cell where he's been for the last however many days, and he's waiting his execution, like completely expecting that he is going to be crucified for his crimes. He got caught. He knows what happens to criminals like him. He's expecting to be crucified. But as he sits there on this day, maybe he's, he's scrawling lines on the side of the wall to keep track of what day it is. He hears something down the end of a hall. It's a guard coming towards him. You can hear the keys jangling as the guard comes his way. This is it. This is it, he thinks. There's a clank and a creak and the door opens and light shines into the room and Barabbas looks up. Get up, the guard says. You're free. Get out of here. What? what, what, Why? I don't know. They're going to kill some guy named Jesus instead of you today. Get out of here. You're like, what is going on here? Do you you think that when you read this story? Like, we're we're tempted on first read to... To think that Barabbas is just an an interruption in the story, right? I mean, maybe he's just there to show us how insane this mob is, right? Like, what part does Barabbas have to play in the story of Jesus? 
Even just saying those two names in the same sentence is utterly audacious, y'all. Barabbas, thoroughly disgusting, a traitor, a rebel, a terrorist. Someone in that crowd may have even known the person he murdered, completely guilty of what he's done. And there's Jesus. What has he done? The perfectly beautiful, innocent man. What has he done but set free and open blind eyes and heal the sick and raise the dead? What has he done? But what happens in this story? Barabbas lives and Jesus dies in his place. Now Luke doesn't intend for us to do like a deep dive into Barabbas' life, okay? He's not intending for us to figure out if Barabbas really understood what happened to him. Luke simply intends to see this important fact at the forefront. Jesus died in the place of Barabbas. I mean, Barabbas, his very name means son of the father. And Jesus... God, the son of the true father, dies in his place. The cross shows us that Jesus is the substitute for sinners. And that's what we see when we look at Barabbas. That's what the cross is about. It's about substitution. But then there's something else we need to talk about in this text. And it comes as we examine one of the criminals that's next to Jesus. So where Barabbas shows us what the cross is about, it's about substitution, This criminal shows us how we can receive it for ourselves. The text tells us in verse 39 that one of the criminals on one side mocks Jesus. And in his cry, he's he's only interested in Jesus getting him off the cross. I mean, Jesus, if you are the son of God, save yourself and save us. Get me out of the pain I'm in if you really are the Messiah is what he says. But he's not the only criminal there that day. There's another one. And this one has somehow been gripped with who Jesus really is. You look down at verse 40. What does this criminal say? He rebukes his friend, saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? In other words, you're about to face God. You should try to be right with him. Indeed, we are here justly. We're receiving the due reward for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. So far in this story, everyone has missed who Jesus really is. Until now. A criminal has seen Jesus as completely innocent completely undeserving of the punishment he's receiving. He sees himself for how guilty he is. He also sees that death will not be the end for Jesus. Did you notice that? He assumes that there's going to be a kingdom on the other side, and he stakes everything on Jesus in that moment. Remember me, Jesus, when you come to your kingdom. Remember me. He doesn't say, Jesus, get me off the cross so I can get back to my life. 
He also doesn't say, remember my works, Jesus, which is very interesting. He doesn't say, remember my good deeds. No, he owns his sin. He doesn't belittle it or try to hide behind it. He doesn't say, remember how good I've been since I met you. He doesn't say, remember how good I am in comparison to that jerk over there that was just mocking you. He simply has one cry, and it is a cry for mercy. Remember me. That's my only hope. And friends, that's our only hope as well. And Jesus' response to him is some of the most incredible words in all of the gospel. Truly, I say to you, Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. More than just a place in the kingdom, y'all, with me in paradise. How, How could Jesus do that? How could the perfectly innocent one do that for a criminal? How could he offer a man like that paradise? Well, I think it all comes down to what happens immediately after Jesus says these words. Verse 44, Luke tells us that it's noon, okay, about the sixth hour. And Luke shows us that everything gets really dark in that moment. The sun's light failed. Okay, this wasn't a solar eclipse, right? That wouldn't have fit with the calendar being Passover week. This isn't a dust storm that somehow kicked up enough dust to blot out the sun and make things a little bit darker. No, this was actually during rainy season in Jerusalem. This is a supernatural act of God to reflect the judgment that is being poured out on Jesus in this moment. That's what darkness symbolizes all throughout the rest of the Bible. It's it's a symbol of God's judgment. It's a symbol of mourning. God's judgment and wrath against sin. Oh my friends, how could Jesus offer paradise to the criminal hanging next to him? Because on that day, all of the anger and wrath that God had against sin was poured out on Jesus. That's why. Oh my friends, God the Father, whose light shone in the manger in Bethlehem at Jesus' birth, God the Father, whose light opened the heavens when Jesus was baptized in the Jordan River, God the Father, whose light had been with his Son through every moment of his life, was now turning his face away from him on that hill in Jerusalem. And the darkness is meant to show us that Jesus was taking all the punishment and the separation and the wrath that sinners deserved on himself. How could Jesus offer paradise to this criminal? Because he was dying in their place. That's why. But that's not the only miracle that shows up in this text, is it? Verse 45 tells us that the curtain in the temple was torn in two. Another passage tells us that it was torn from top to bottom. What happened to that curtain? God ripped it from top to bottom so that everyone would know that it was him. Now what does that mean? Well, that curtain marked off an area of the temple that was called the most holy place, the most holy place. It was called that because that's where God's very presence dwelled. It was a place where only one person from one tribe once a year could go. 
and then only behind the one sacrifice that could be poured out as a, as a forgiveness for sins. I mean, symbolically, that curtain, it represented separation between God and man. Separation that had been there ever since Adam and Eve were banished from the Garden of Eden because of their sin. Like God had even stationed an angel with a flaming sword to bar them from ever returning. That angel was embroidered on the outside of this curtain as a reminder of that separation between God and man. Oh my friends, the whole Bible is actually a story of the tragic consequences of that separation and God's plan to put an end to it. And here, as Jesus dies, that redemption comes to its fulfillment. The barrier is removed. The curtain is torn. And for the first time since Eden, man is welcomed into the presence of God again. Do you see what's happening because Jesus' body was torn apart on the tree, what separates me and you from him has been torn apart too. And anyone can come. Anyone. Anyone is invited into the presence of God. It does not matter how bad you think you are. Who's the first one to receive Jesus' salvation in his death? A criminal, a Roman Gentile centurion who has overseen Jesus' death is the first to worship him after he dies. It doesn't matter how bad we are. It also doesn't matter how good we are. Because as Jesus is taken off the cross and buried, do you know who's taking care of it? A good and righteous man. One who also followed Jesus. One who following Jesus cost him dearly to stand up and say, could I have that body? Because he was one of the religious leaders who had just sentenced him to death. Doesn't matter how bad you are. It doesn't matter how good you are. Anyone can be with Jesus in paradise if they see him for who he really is. And they see themselves for who they are and accept what he's doing on the cross. I wonder, do you see Jesus? Not just as a concept or as an idea, but as a very real savior, in control, perfectly innocent, dying in the place of sinners. Do you see yourself in this story? You know, after you read the story, becomes very clear who Barabbas really is. It's us. It's you and me. It becomes very clear whose example we should follow in this text. We should look at the criminal and admit our need and plead for mercy. And for any who do that, Jesus will die in their place for their sins and invite them to eternal life with him. And friends, that can be you today. And I'd invite you. Admit your need for mercy. Turn from living life your own way. Put your trust completely in Jesus Christ and you will be saved.
Would you bow your heads? Let's pray together. As we close, I want to invite you to respond to the word. For those of you who have received the gift of eternal life, what have you seen about Jesus that has awakened your affections and love for him? Worship him in your heart, would you? Look to him. For those of you who have not yet received what he's done for you on the cross, or or maybe you're not sure if you have yet, what is keeping you from casting yourself fully on his mercy? You can do that right now in your heart. Confess your sin. Call on the name of the Lord. Turn to him and you will be saved. If you have questions about that, there's men and women here at the church that would love to talk to you about it. Maybe a friend who you came with or a friend who you've been getting to know at Gospel Grace, they'd love to talk to you about this. Jesus stands ready with the offer of mercy and forgiveness and eternal life for those who will come to him. Oh Lord, do your good work. We want to respond to your word. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm going to be in the back after the service. I'd love to meet you if you have questions about Jesus. Come find me. There's other men and women that are going to be around that would love to talk to you about Jesus. Come find us after the service. We'd love to talk to you.